On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This show features the band Dearly Beloved. The band's mainstays are Rob Higgins and Neva Chow. Now, Rob grew up in the presence of great music. He started going to Rush concerts while he was still in single digits and hanging out with his uncle, Getty Lee. But after the death of his father, Rob really just wanted to make music with the people he loved. That was 14 years ago and the beginning of Dearly Beloved. But there's a lot more in this show. Like the time Rob toured with Our Lady Peace and had four days to learn all the keyboard parts on paper towels. And there's a time his arm blew up. And how about the time Dearly Beloved recorded an entire album and forgot about it? Well, they recently released a new album called Times Square Discount that they haven't forgotten about. It's a really wild album, and you need to check it out on Bandcamp or wherever you get your music nowadays. Follow the band at The Beloveds on social media. Follow their bird, Bruce Lee, at Bruce Lee Beverly Hills Bird on Instagram. He's relentless. But this show is pretty chill. And check out Rob Higgins and Neva Chow here on Performance Anxiety. You should just have Neva do it. I'm Rob. No. <laughs> you should just do the whole read. I'm Rob, and I'm Neva, <laughs> and we're dearly beloved, and this is Performance Anxiety. <laughs> is, that what, is that what you're imagining? Yeah, something like that. That's kind of perfect. <laughs> I hope we didn't um, ruin your awesome podcast by being on it. Well, you got plenty of light. You look very well lit. Oh, and, thank you. Uh, and uh, you have no shortage of of, uh, of lighting going on there. Thanks for having us on your podcast. Oh man, thank you guys for coming on. Um, where where are you Where are you located now? I'm in Winchester, Virginia. Oh, you're just west of DC. Yeah, about seven, about seventy five miles. Um, my mom remarried in the DC area, and oh, I used wow. to go vis- visit visit uh, her and and my sister, who uh, she moved there with. Uh, all the time. Spent a lot of time in that area. And Tyler Beans, who plays uh, all the samples and keyboards in, in Dearly Beloved, he lives in Virginia, and so he's not far from there either. So oh, awesome. We have a lot of connections to that area. Oh, that is fantastic. That's mm-hmm. so. If well, if you guys ever get come out here, <laughs> you uh, you know, check out Winchester is a great area. It's not too far from DC, and it's. I know you guys like to, uh, especially with the last album, do a little bit of exploring and, and do some research on wherever, whatever area you're uh, playing in. So this is, it's not too far from D.C. It's a home of Patsy Cline. It's just a great, great little area. I, I love going down there. And I especially love just researching the history of the area and, and, and checking all those things out. Not necessarily historical sites or what have you, but just the the general american history of the area and yeah. and just being there and, and absorbing and reading about it it's it's a pleasure and there's a lot of it here man <laughs> Between, yeah i bet uh, the the american revolution the civil war there is this place is dripping in history <laughs> absolutely it's a, it's a, it would be it would be a, it would be a wonderful place for us to visit we've 
every time that we've gone places, as you were sort of alluding to, like um, <laughs> Ireland or places um, with a well-documented history like that, that that's uh, readily available online, I mean, we spend a lot of our free time just, you know, diving into the strange and quirky uh, historical elements of their culture. Well, that's one of the things that uh, I was, as I was doing my research, I found out about your band is that's kind of a different take as opposed to a lot of bands when they're touring. They're just kind of in and out. I've heard so many musicians say, I don't remember being in this place. I don't, you know, I don't, oh, you were, you know, you were in, uh, I don't know. Well, well, let's just say you were in DC. Yeah. You know, I don't remember much of it because we were we were there, we went to the venue, we played, we packed up and we left. Yeah. I mean, we can, um, I mean, we can relate to that too. I mean, for a lot of reasons, I mean, we've done a fair amount of touring, so there's some stuff that we're kind of blanked out. I'm sure there's also times where, um, I had a, a pretty invasive surgery and I had to recover for a long time on, um, morphine. And so we re, we cancel, had to cancel a bunch of tour dates because of that. And when we did the the rebooking of the tour, um, I was still on the morphine program. So I, wow. to this day, I cannot remember. Uh, we talked about this a bunch. I still to this day cannot remember a single moment from an entire two week tour of Southern Ontario that we did during that recovery time. So wow, I, I think because of stuff like that, I mean. I don't know how much you're familiar with like, you know, how our band started and stuff. I mean, it, it kind of came out of some dark shit and yeah. you know, my, my father had passed away and you know, I was super bummed and, and anyone would be. And, and it was just uh, an outlet, you know, a place to make music with friends and people I love and people trusted. And it just kept going for whatever reason. And, and, um, so, um, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> rambling already. No, no, don't worry about it. That's what th- this show is just a conversation, man. That's what I love about this. It's, it's not just. I'm not going to be peppering you with questions. We're just talking. Anyways, so you guys, there was, there was a point to that. I'm sure. I, I seem to have just completely blanked. <laughs> well, we were just talking about how a lot of bands don't remember where they've toured oh, because there they, you go. we can't remember our stories, but we, <laughs> we can remember most of the tours. That's what we were talking about. Anyways, my point being, um, we, we took from that and from other experiences, we just didn't want to waste our time on tour. We didn't want to just have it be a lousy experience that was draining financially and emotionally. And, yeah. and we wanted to get something out of it. And so, you know, we it's started, really easy for it to get monotonous and, you know, drive, load in, play, load out. Uh, I've heard that a and lot. Some, now we, you know, take the time and, and see, appreciate the little things along the, along the way and, you know, maybe drive circuitous routes to get where we need to go. But, you know, we learn something and see something different. Yeah. yeah we usually would get off the, the main highway and take a longer route that would take us through something that we can research ahead of time. And then as a band, I mean, this sounds super nerdy, um, but cause it is, um, uh, as a band, we'll sit and talk about it in the van, you know, and sort of research some element of whatever it is we're driving through. And whether it's the white sands missile base or it's, uh, um, Stonehenge or, or it's, uh, the Hill of Tara in Ireland, 
Um, when we're passing by these things, we don't want to just pass by them and, and, and not take at least a moment to understand their significance in the history of that area. And having proximity to it like that, it, it just seems foolish to not take advantage of that. And at least, you know, you, even if it's an hour, you know, your day's pretty monotonous. And so even if it's just an hour that you can steal away and go sit at the Hill of Tara, read about it before you get there, see it when you get there, spend an hour just sitting there in peace, absorbing the situation and the environment um, before you race to the venue and argue and fight your way through traffic. And uh, it's like a, a, a wonderful sort of break from from, as you say, sort of that monotony. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's something that we've built into every single one of our tours. And, you know, you look at what's going on now with COVID and everything and touring being shut down. Yeah. It makes all those experiences feel all that more special. And, uh, it's hard to conceive of having those types of experiences right now with everything that's going on. Yeah. And that, that's a great point. You know, now you can actually look back and, and on these tour experiences, I remember, seeing this landmark or, or spending time at this historical place. So that's, that's fantastic. It's important to us. I mean, it's, it was really important to me, especially after all, you know, some sort of stuff that went on yeah. in our world, you know, it's like how many opportunities do you get to do these things? And, you know, you're, when you face your own mortality, you sort of, um, you know, like anyone that goes through an experience like that, you, you, you look at things a little differently and, and you're like, well, if I'm in Ireland, I may as well learn everything I can, I can about the Dublin occult grid. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah. it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful family stuff like that, that, <laughs> that, uh, we like to, um, learn about. Well, I want to find out a little bit more about how you guys got to where you are. So uh, Rob, you have music in your family. Getty Lee's your uncle, so you know you've had you've been what he is. Oh shit! Did I is that breaking news? <laughs> no, please please go on. <laughs> so you've you grew up kind of in a musical environment. Did your did your parents were they musical musically inclined? Or? My dad used to have a bunch of forty fives. Um, I remember that distinctly from when I was a kid. He had this big stack of forty fives, and I always listened to them. My dad really liked music. Yeah, I mean, my mom and my mom's side of the family, music was always a thing, too. I mean, some of my earliest memories of music are going to, you know, like rush shows when I was like, you know, four years old. Wow. And, and uh, you know, not really knowing what was going on. Um, I guess by the, you know, by the time I went to my first concert, you know, that I paid for and chose to go to, I'd seen a bunch of rush shows. Yeah. And, um, you know, so there, there was music around, um, my parents definitely had music going on in the house and, and my dad, you know, loved to, to, to think he was a good singer yeah, and, uh, loved to sing. And, um, and even up until he passed away, I mean, going to his house to visit him, music was always a big deal. He'd always be putting something on to share with me. And, and my mom's uh, husband, Arthur, same thing on that side of the, uh, of the, of the scene, you know, he's you know, a huge music fan and, and has always tried to turn me on to things that he's really into. And, um, some of it was awesome. And some of it was John McLaughlin. So, um, 
you know, I, I've been fortunate to have a lot of uh, music around me yeah. as, as a kid and, and as an adult. Aniva, what about you? Did you grow up in a big musical household? Uh, not at all. No? <laughs> I grew up in small town Saskatchewan. My parents uh, owned a store and then later a restaurant, so uh, music was not a big part of it. My dad liked the platters and the four tops and Elvis, but uh, there wasn't a lot of music enrichment going on. <laughs> all right, so... Let's- yeah, but it's funny. We met at a time when, um, you know, like university days in Vancouver and, and a lot of the stuff that we had in common, you know, um, it's all music related stuff. I mean, that's sort of like was the bonding agent for our friendship to begin with. Yeah. Um, so, uh, maybe not a musical upbringing, but like you were into music pretty early in the sure. game. So how did how did you start playing music? I uh, I guess I just fell into it. Uh, Rob helped me buy my first bass a long, long time ago. Okay. Um, I had a band called Sticky Race. Oh, cool. Uh, an all female delicious. band. Blinding light. My intelligence. The shine out. What is relevant? But. Yeah, it was fun. We put out two records and then um, Dearly Beloved. And we've now, it's what, six records? Yeah, well, that's when I knew like um, Neva would bring something to the table because of Sticky Rice. I mean, um, their band was amazing. Uh, yeah. You can ask anyone from the Toronto music scene that saw them live in, during their, their time together. And, and they were undeniably likable had great songs and seemed to be over the top uh, enthusiastic and, and stoked to be doing it. So, oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, it was a it was a no brainer to to work with someone like Neva in the beginning. You know, it was uh, people like Sandy McIntosh from Tristan Sionic and Paula from Sticky Rice. You know, folks that were in our inner circle that. I had similar uh, views on on music. Rob, you, you play bass, and you're pretty damn good. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> that's, that might be news to you, too. Well, it's, a pl- it's a pleasure to hear Thank something you. like that. Thank you. Now, <laughs> <laughs> was bass what you started off on? No, I wanted to be a drummer. I wanted to be a drummer so bad. And, and uh, in the beginning my folks wouldn't get me a drum kit and I don't blame them. I mean, looking back, who wants to get a little kid, a drum kit? Um, (laughs) but that's what I wanted desperately. I wanted to be a drummer. And so I was fortunate enough to receive from, um, my uncle as a gift, a snare drum. And I used a bunch of my dad's awesome late seventies leather pillows to complete the drum kit in my bedroom. And dude, I remember sitting there for hours listening to records as a kid, 
with my drumsticks, my snare drum, and a whole bunch of dead, non-resonant uh, <laughs> leather pillows, and I beat the living shit out of them. <laughs> it was it was awesome. Oh man, that now if you had a recording of that, that'd be you guys could probably use that on something. <laughs> Oh man, if it was a different time, it would probably all be on the internet. Or yeah, something. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I read that you were actually at one point the uh, touring basis for Our Lady Peace. Was that? I was. Yeah, was that, before, that was a great experience. Was that before or during Dearly Beloved? That was sort of during. I mean, um, I had met Our Lady Peace as when I was playing with a band, a Canadian band called Change of Heart, and. A change of hearted toward with Our Lady Pieces, their support act, and that's sort of how we got to know each other. Oh, cool. Um, and I had just started Dearly Beloved, and out of the blue, um, I got a call from a friend of a friend who said, you know, hey, Our Lady Pieces, wondering if you know, you go out and play with them for a while. And uh, and so one thing led to another, and yeah, I ended, up, I ended up doing that twice, I think, each time for about um, six weeks or so. Oh, cool. And, uh, it was a great experience. I mean, there were, um, obviously some challenges in the whole thing. I, I hadn't played with them before. And so, you know, there was a adjusting to it and, but it went well, it went really well the first time actually. And then there was another opportunity for, for their bass player to take some time off. And so he asked me, he said, Hey, you know, since you've done this before, would you mind doing it again? And so I said, sure. And I, and I remember meeting them in, um, San Antonio to start the second tour. And when I got there, they were all getting ready to leave. And I, I was like, Oh, where are you guys going? And they were like, we're going back to LA. We have a bunch of press to do, but um, you're going to go with the bus and meet us up in Montana. I think it was <laughs> Montana was the first the first yeah. show. And so I was a bit surprised by that, but whatever, rolling with the punches. And then as they're about to get in their car and take off, um, to go do what they had to do. I remember rain saying, you learned all the keyboard parts, right? And I said, um, what? <laughs> and he he said, well, we don't have a keyboard player anymore. Duncan plays all the keyboard parts now. So you learned all the keyboard parts, right? And I said, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, all right, well, you're good. You got about four days until the first show, so I'm sure you can figure it out. <laughs> I'm sure you can figure it out. Jeez. And, I, and then they hopped in a car and split. And I'm sitting there backstage at some festival in San Antonio. I've just arrived. I'm now by myself with a bus driver. And he's like, all right, so I guess we should get going. <laughs> and, you know. I'm now a little concerned. And so um, I basically have four days to just figure this out on a bus while rolling on our way to Montana. So I got the catalog out of the band that, that they'd given me to learn. And I started playing it on the bus lounge. And I took um, uh, a roll of paper towel and I spread it out on the, the couch of the front lounge in the bus. And I basically made myself a little keyboard with a, a Sharpie because I had to use what was on hand. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and so I grabbed a Sharpie and the paper towel roll, and I basically made a keyboard and um, used the bass to produce the Sonics and learned 
figured out what was being played on the keyboard by using the bass and then figuring out how I would play that on the paper towel. Oh my and God. I, I did that for four days to learn their entire <laughs> set to play to 15,000 people at an arena with three doors down in Montana. Oh my God. Yeah. So by this point, like two days in, I'm pretty much shitting my pants at this point because it's not really working that well. Um, and it's not, it's taking, not, you like, kidding it's, not me. it's not even like sticking. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night on the bus going, Oh, Oh, like I was just having like night terrors. Like, <laughs> like, like I couldn't remember anything. I had just spent the whole day learning. Oh. And, uh, and so the third day comes around. I'll never forget this moment because the bus driver was just having a smoke and I was just sitting outside while he was having his smoke and he just looked at me and he just kind of shook his head and I just kind of shook my head and we both just recognized just how fucked I was. <laughs> and, uh, and we just had a little laugh and, and, uh, anyways, I get to the, uh, we get to Montana and we're now like one day away from the first show of the tour and it's a co-headlining tour with three doors down. So every venue is like 10, 15,000 people. Right. And, uh, I've still yet to touch the keyboard. Um, oh, God. and so, uh, we get to the hotel, I find out they're just going to be meeting me at sound check. So I still haven't seen anyone. The day of the show arrives, uh, I have the dude, the bus driver, we go head down to the venue. It's this big, like giant arena, um, belongs to a school and the stage is all set up. The, you know, the crews are there. Everything's checked up and ready to go. And, and, uh, I'm just like desperate just to look at the keyboard. Like, I just yeah. want to know like, what kind of keyboard am I using? <laughs> like, is there anything I need to know about this keyboard? Cause all I've been practicing on is a fucking roll of paper you towel. <laughs> and, um, I get to the stage and I'm told I'm basically just gonna have to wait until the band gets there and, and you know, the usual. And so I'm just sitting in the stands, just getting more and more nervous by the minute waiting for sound check to happen. Finally, it's time for us to sound check. And I get to the stage and uh, there's a stage left tech, like a guy that's looking after the bass gear. He's looking after the, the gear. And um, as he uh, as he introduces himself or after he introduces himself to me, he, he asked me, he said, Do you, have you have you learned all the presets for each song? And I was like, dude, are you kidding me? I've never seen this fucking keyboard before. Oh, and my God. And he goes, okay, well, it's no big deal. There's just, there's different settings for each song. So when you get over here between each song, you have to change the settings. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm about to have like some sort of aneurysm right on the spot. And, uh, and then the band walks on stage and, you know, everyone's happy in a good mood. And within minutes, we're just like right into the first song. And I'm staring at this strange keyboard and using this, you know, other person's gear and it was just uh, it's like everything just sort of went dark for a minute and so God. somehow the first song ended I don't know how who got me over the keyboard I don't know who played the part <laughs> I don't know who did any of that but somehow we got to the end of it and I didn't fuck up and so we did another song and some you know I don't know what happened some out of body thing happened like we got through another one Wow. And we managed to get through sound check. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> and then, uh, the show time came and every, I was in, you know, the dressing room by myself, frantically listening to stuff over and over, kind of panicking. And the band was just kind of like giving me the gears like, Hey, don't fuck this up. Nice. And, uh, 
And uh, we went on stage and somehow I managed to make it through that entire show the way I made it through soundcheck, literally by going like one section of the song at a time, just sort of micromanaging the moment and got to the end of the show. And I'll wrap the story up with, you know, like one of the highlights for me, which was completely, I mean, it was like probably the worst clam of my performing career was I got about three shows into this tour and I felt for the first time, those thoughts where you, you can kind of take a break from, you know, being in that moment. Like I started thinking about how many people were at the show and I started thinking thoughts like, wow, you know, this is, this is a really good show. This crowd seems to be really into it. And, and I remember thinking to myself, man, like you're really starting to get comfortable with this keyboard stuff. And it was in the middle of this big, like piano intro, one of their more popular songs. And it's just rain singing and me on the keyboard by myself, like under a spotlight in front of like 15,000 people in Pittsburgh at like three rivers, <laughs> fucking outdoor, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like playing this part, having those thoughts I just described and proceeded to hit like the worst chord you could hit in the dude's song. It was just like the world's worst clam. Like I hit a completely dissonant note in the middle of the progression. And because I kind of had come out of that desperation mode, that survival mode for a moment, I, I completely fucked up and I'll never forget him being like, he was in the middle of climbing the rafters. Like, you know, as lead singers have done. Yeah. And, uh, and he was way up there climbing things and looked at me like, dude, really? <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, yeah, I've toured with our lady peace before. <laughs> oh man. That's an amazing story. <laughs> oh God. I, I, for the record, for the record, I loved it. And they're very fond memories of mine. And I love those guys. And, um, I do have a lot of respect for all the hard work and time and energy that they've put into building what they've got. And, uh, and it was a a great education for me and they were very generous with uh, everything from promoting dearly beloved to paying me well for my services to treating me like one of the band, not making me feel like a hired gun, which I clearly was. Yeah. Oh, that's Um, awesome. So it was actually a great, great experience and and one i'll always cherish oh that's that's good to hear because i love that band i think that they're they're amazing and uh unfortunately i still haven't had a chance to see them catch them live but um rush wonderful guys wonderful guys and uh it was um it was a it was a pleasure to be asked and to see firsthand you know, the amazing thing they, they built and, you know, people can knock them for this and that or whatever, but like they built an amazing thing. So they, they really did. And going back to, to you, you know, being raved on rush shows, rush was actually my first concert too. So get out of here. Really? Yeah. Presto tour. The presto tour. Yeah. I was 16. So 12 years after, after you started, but yeah, that's wild, dude. The Presto Tour. Yeah, Mr. When Bake I think of the up. Presto Tour, the first thing that comes to mind is the the picture of the album cover in my yep. grandmother's house. Oh, that's in your grandmother's house. Yeah, because she's got, uh, in her TV room at her old house, she doesn't have that house anymore. She, she lives in a different place now, but in, in her family home that we all grew up in, 
well, I didn't grow up there, but we had all of our family get-togethers there. Yeah. In the TV room was a framed picture of the Presto album cover. So that's the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that album. Oh, that's awesome. That, it was the first concert I, I ever went to, and Mr. Big opened up for him. So. Oh, shit. Did you just say Mr. Big? Yes. Billy I did uh, one of the greatest touring experiences of my life was touring with Mr. Big and Rush. Oh, really? Oh, my God. It was so much fun. I mean, I was a teenager, and um, I was lucky enough to go on the road with my uncle's band for a while. And Mr. Big <laughs> were the opening band. That's and so every night I got to watch Billy Sheen and Paul Gilbert just rip on their instruments. That's insane. And, and uh, I, I remember this, like, one day, like, seeing Paul Gilbert working on his guitar and his guitar strings while sitting on the bench of the hockey arena we were in. And he was like on the, like the team, the, the home team's like bench of the arena. Oh. And so I, I was just so cool that by the fact that like you could go sit on the hockey team bench, yeah. let, let alone next to like Paul Gilbert and talk to him <laughs> about guitar and stuff. That hit everything for you, man. It hit music, hockey, everything. Yeah. It was just like, I mean, some those are some of my favorite memories from my childhood or, being in hockey arenas when they weren't being used for hockey. That's it was just something, it was just something extra special about that. Like <laughs> when, you know, when it was Maple Leaf gardens, when I was a kid, like I'll never forget walking by the hockey night in Canada broadcasting booth where Don Cherry and all those guys would do the broadcasting Cherry, from. Yeah. And you'd see like that. It was just this dingy, gross little room with like two stools and like some shitty little backdrop. And, Yep. And, you know, it was kind of like seeing behind the curtain a little bit. So, yeah, those, those images and, yeah, man, it was just like, this bring back some wild memories. Yeah, when I saw him for, on the Presto Tour, it was at the Brendan Burn Arena where the Jersey Devils played. It was like their fourth year in, of, of existence or something, so. That's yeah. wild. That's pretty neat. And uh, the second time I saw Rush, Mr. Big opened up again, and I was actually a little pissed because Primus was supposed to open up, but they switched a couple dates and Mr. Big ended up opening up instead of Primus. And I had already seen Mr. Big, so I was like, I want to see somebody new. I mean, it was still cool to see Mr. Big, but I wanted to see Primus. I fucking love Primus. And then Candlebox opened the, the third and last time I was able to see Rush. So, Like I said, I love Primus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so you guys start this band, Dearly Beloved. How did you come up with the name? Well, my dad had just died. I was all fucking emo boy. I was like, so, you know, I was in a dark fucking shitty place. And, and, uh, dearly <laughs> beloved, it, it was, you know, it just felt like the thing at the time. And, and the idea of only making music with people that I, you know, cause I felt, to be honest with you, I felt a little, um, sour about some of the musical experiences I just come out of okay. and I just wanted to work with folks that I knew and and people that I loved and trusted and so the name kind of was born out of those two things you know my dad passing and the desire to just make music with friends okay. as opposed to um, people that aren't my friends <laughs> you don't want to record with those people no, it's not just that. It's just, uh, I mean, I, I work with tons of musicians now in my, in, well, up until COVID, uh, yeah. working with a lot of musicians was a regular thing for me. So I really appreciate that part of it. I love collaborating, uh, especially with people that I don't know. But at the time I was just in a place 
where I just, I just didn't want to do something as powerful and important and sacred as music with people that I didn't know. And so I sort of, you know, created this, this thing and, uh, slapped a name on it and we ended up playing some shows and it was just a bunch of friends getting together, just making music and they knew I kind of needed to do it. And so I thank them for their generosity of spirit because, you know, it was just for fun. It was to do nothing but have some fun with music and, and to have this outlet. And, uh, so I'm very thankful to everybody that, that put time and energy into that. You and Neva are the, core of the band it, it was that is that by design do you guys have any we're just else? the only two left from that initial push <laughs> <laughs> okay i mean the truth of the matter i mean paula moved to la sandy retired and became an architect and and so you know we fucking replaced them and just kept going because you know it was it was something that I was enjoying and I'd, I'd said it, it's something I wanted to create for myself to always be there if I wanted to, to do something with it or not. And if it didn't feel like it was something that was you know, helpful to have, I, I would stop working on it. And, um, so we just kept going and yeah. making music and, and other friends wanted to participate. So, um, it just became this sort of rotating cast of, of friends and friends of friends and, and, um, somebody needed to do something else, you know, we, we would find another friend that would, you know, want to do some music stuff. And, and it's, it's been enriching. It's, you know, I don't, I certainly don't think we would have survived this long had we tried to survive with <laughs> one lineup because, you know, so many of, of those folks aren't even making music anymore. So, yeah. um, we knew that going in that in order for it to be an outlet for, for me to have for as long as I wanted it, that it had to be fluid. It was by design. There, there would never be a set lineup. It would just be an outlet. It would, you know, people tried slapping like art collective and stuff on it or whatever in the beginning, you call it whatever you want. It's just yeah. the dude's dad died and him and his friends just started making tunes and then it became like a record. And then this manager that I, you know, I give Jake gold credit because, um, he was a manager that I was working with on a different project. And he said, Hey, if you want to make a dearly beloved record, like I'll, I'll back it and put it out for you. He said, whatever you want to do, man, you can do it. And I was like, Fuck yeah. Okay. So I got, I'll never forget it. I got 10 grand from the label and I went down the street with the money to Rob Sanzo who owns signal to noise studios at the time. And I said, Rob, how much studio time can I get with this much money? <laughs> and, uh, it was that kind of thing. And he let us lock out the studio for, I don't know, I forget how many days, 14 days or something. Oh wow. And uh, we used that to, to make the most of what became the second record. Cause the first one was all made on our own. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it just sort of snowballed in weird little ways. And then all this sort of synchronicity started to happen. And suddenly it became some, this thing that just, just kept going and kept growing. It never really had any big successes, um, some small failures. Um, but it just always just kept moving forward a little bit. And better things just kept happening. And we just got better at things. And so... Um, we feel very fortunate that we've even had the opportunity this, uh, in the past year to have toured and to put out a record. Um, 
considering the band's been around for like a dozen years, 12 or 13 years now. So yeah. And um, the music I'm, I'm, I'm actually new to the band. Uh, I've found out about you guys from Jason Thompson who says hello, by the way. Hey Jay. And (laughs) so he's like, you got to get up with Rob. He's you're going to love dearly beloved. Check him out. So Jay's very generous that way. He's also a very wise musical person. He's, he's such a great guy. I had him on the show a few months back and we've just kind of been talking literally ever since it's, it's hilarious, but Mm -hmm. Jay's a great guy. Oh, he's, I I love him to death. So he's been on a few times. Actually, we did a show with vast robot armies and then he's come on to talk other stuff. Like uh, I'll do other shows where uh, I had him and Aaron Lazar from the giraffes come on. And we just talked about the best cover versions. So that's amazing. Like who, who did a, who did a song better than the original recording? So we did like a whole hour or so on that. So you guys made some, made a couple amazing albums. And then I hear this, I I read this kind of weird story about the hog vs. pigeon album. And I want to know a little well, bit. There's more been about a that. few weird stories with us. Which one are you referring to? Now you had you had gone. You'd, you'd mentioned that you had the surgery. Uh, I think it was in your for your intestines, and you kind of mm-hmm. ended up going out in the desert. That's right. Yeah. And you uh, you came back to record, and, and you just you guys just kind of went into Rancho de la Luna. Mm-hmm. And just recorded what like eight hours worth <laughs> of stuff. And forgot yeah, about it. it um, oh, I, oh, I, I think I know the story you're referring to. Does this have to do with the vocal and the hawk and the pigeon and the whole thing and the yeah. naming of the album? Well, it, it's, oh. it's. I read it. The, the way the story was, I read it was that you guys recorded all this material at Rancho de la Luna, then kind of mm-hmm. went on tour for a while and forgot about it, and then stumbled yep. upon the file later. Uh, well, sort of. I mean. That is partially true. At that point, we were recording vocals, and Hawk versus Pigeon was one of the potential names of the album. Okay. And as I was recording the vocals, literally a hawk flew into the tree in the winter. Well, let's give him a little backstory. I mean, we we took all this time off, as you say. After recording all the beds in Joshua Tree at Rancho de la Luna, we did take a time off from recording, and we did a bunch of touring. Then when we came back to Toronto, we had um, we opened up the hard drives and found all this stuff we didn't even know. We like we had no memory of even fucking recording it. Oh my God. And look, we we might have gotten a little fucked up <laughs> while we while we invented jams and stuff. That might have happened. I don't know. Anyway, some of the stuff we found it was kind of surprising and fun. It was like, oh shit, I remember doing this, and then. At that time, we were putting vocals on one of those ideas that we had just sort of rediscovered. Okay. And that's when this, that picks up when this happened to Neva. She was recording her vocal outside uh, the window of the room she was recording her vocal in. A hawk landed in the tree.
Well, that's the story. A hawk <laughs> landed in the tree. And? And proceeded to tear this pigeon apart in front of me, like entrails. Oh. And for like 10, 15 minutes, literally in the middle of the city, downtown, this crazy hawk is tearing apart a pigeon. It was crazy. Oh my God. And we were, we had, we had debated uh, the idea of calling the album Hawk versus Pigeon. Like that was literally the, the working title for the record. And so we were, before that happened, like leading up to that moment, all that time on tour, we were trying to figure out what to call the album. And we got to Toronto and we were like, Maybe we should call it Hawk versus Pigeon. Like that was sort of the working title. And then as she was recording her final vocal, literally, I just said literally twice, literally. <laughs> um, as they were, as she was doing her last vocal for the record, um, this hawk fucking devours a pigeon right outside the window. So we were like, well, I guess that's what we're calling the album. <laughs> if that's not a sign, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what we call the album. Did you guys just happen to, when you're going through the the, the tracks, find the song Day Trader? You, you kind of forgot about that? Because I absolutely love that. That and Doves Above the Door are amazing tracks. Oh, thanks, man. It, it really means a lot that you got to hear that stuff because it feels so buried in our stuff. And you now it's like... It's, um, it's fantastic. I mean, that whole... And it, to me, in, in listening to the the catalog as I have the past few days, the, uh, the Hawk versus pigeon album is, is seems like you kind of expanded your, your range, your palate a little bit. It sounds, um, like you added some new flavors. It's because we were at Rancho de la Luna and, and yeah. it was, it was the type of thing where, you know, Dave, I just want to make sure I, I do it justice. I mean, Dave, um, had kindly and gently suggested that we consider not planning too much and sort of letting it come to us there instead of writing ahead of time. Too oh, much. Dave catching. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, so a lot of those songs come from just moments. Like I remember lizard fight, for example, I was sitting on the floor with one of Dave's guitar. Well, thank you. With one of Dave's guitars and I was just playing that main guitar riff on the floor on his white guitar. And it was just something I was just noodling on as I was waiting to do something else. And he walked by and he went, that sounds like your first riff right there. so and he's like yeah that's cool and and so that just became the song lizard fight and the subject matter lizard fight came out of the fact that when we had taken a break that day uh, and gone to joshua tree national park with dave um actually i don't know if dave joined us that day i think it was just the band actually uh we'd just gone to sort of like explore the park we saw a lizard fight 
And so when we got back to the studio, it was like, well, I guess that's the name of that song. <laughs> and, uh, and we literally wrote the song. I mean, it's metaphoric, but I mean, you know, it's also cool just to write about a lizard fight. Oh yeah. I mean, look, some, some of my favorite songs for you guys are apparently named by nature. <laughs> you need to That's go, okay with me. Yeah, you need to what weed does. Yeah. <laughs> you need to go outside just all yeah, the time. Well, you know, it's um there's something about creation. I mean not to get too fucking whatever, but I mean, you know, the environment has a lot to do with at least in our experience with what comes out. Well, and that- so I think that music when you say the record feels like it's sort of us broadening our horizons or whatever it's because we were literally broadening our horizons i mean we we were on vast open plains and yeah and coastlines and that were new to us and we're, we're so rich in musical history that you know we didn't want to fuck up we didn't want to make something shitty at a place where some so much great music has been made yeah and we felt so honored that dave would have us in his beautiful home uh, and and make us feel so at home and welcome i mean we just wanted to to do our best work and we didn't want to limit that in any way just whatever is the the raddest shit that makes us the most excited um and so things like miles around is about noah purifoy's uh, art installation and so dave took us there um to to sort of learn about Noah and the work he had done before he passed. And, and it was incredibly inspiring. And, and so that song is just literally about the people that come from miles around to see what he left behind. And so that song sonically had to represent the feeling of being there. And, and when you listen to that track, it's stark for like a minute and a half. It's like very quiet and sort of brooding and, and it doesn't really open up until the very end. And it's all built that way to sort of represent uh, or to sort of reflect the experience. Is that why you guys keep going back to Rancho de la Luna? Well, Dave's a wonderful human being and, and uh, it's a magical place. And uh, yeah. I just feel anytime Dave will allow us to come there, you know, I feel very fortunate and, and uh, it's a great honor. So yeah, I love working there. So how much of the music is figured out before you guys go into the studio? For, um, uh, for the most part. I know some of it, like Hawk vs. Pigeon, was a little different. but Well, Hawk vs. Pigeon was a mixed bag, but the next one, Enduro, that we did after Hawk, that was our first time. That we, it was our second album made at Rancho de Luna, and we went into that experience having known what it would be like. So we were a little more excited and a little less nervous that time. And we took Dave's advice and literally brought no songs. We had 13 days booked at Rancho and no songs whatsoever, like nothing. And, um, and we just went for it. You know, it's something that he, you know, it's that whole, you know, um, you know, little element of courage can be good. Yeah, it's and like, almost you like know, so, going back to our little yeah. piece where you didn't know what you were doing. You had four days well, to figure it out. It's just something about that. It's a, it it turned. It could have been a disaster. Yeah. Um, but for us, it, it it worked because I think um, everyone there was so 
into it and, and so immersed and having so much fun. Um, our guitar player during that time was M. McGrath and he was so well versed in the whole idea of improvisation and, and, um, really excelled in, in that type of environment. And our drummer Gavin at the time, uh, just a rock solid meter. So we didn't have to worry about things like click tracks. We could literally just press record and just go at 35 takes of one song idea that we had just put together in the last few hours after throwing hand axes and smoking a bunch of hash over coffee. <laughs> um, man, that's like, that was kind of a typical day. Like, to, to get like right in there with you. Like we would wake up, we lived at the house next door and we'd wake up in the morning and quite, um, well, pretty much every day would meet on the front porch and put some records on and make coffee and, and smoke whatever was around and throw hand axes at these targets to kind of get the blood flowing. That's and, um, and after doing that for like a, an hour or so and just hanging out and talking and catching a vibe with each other, um, everyone would kind of go to their own areas and shower, get ready or whatever. And, um, we'd head down to the studio and, and by then there was this cool hollow body silver metal base that lived in the house we were staying in. So I would pick it up after we got high and threw hand axes and just jam on riffs. And by the time I got to the studio with it, just walking in the sand with it, I have like three or four ribs. And so, uh, we would just get together in the room, turn everything on and just start jamming on all the sections and then sort of work out arrangements on the fly. Um, scat some sort of vocal idea to get an idea how to arrange it and what would happen. And then just get the beds down live as one take guitar, bass and drums, no click tracks, just, get it done and, and try to get it. And we would just go at it until we had a good take. I mean, like, I mean, we'd had good takes. We had Dave catching, walking by going, guys, you don't have to do this to yourselves. Like <laughs> it's, you don't have to keep, you don't have to do this. And we were like, no, fuck this. Like if we're going to come down here with no songs and do this whole thing, like let's go all the way with it. Let's, let's get one kick-ass take, no click formed live and and so i think that was the most i think that was what we had for olympics and no regard which is one of the songs from or something like a, okay. some sort of medical emergency oh no and i don't know something happened like my like instant swelling something blew up on the side or something Ooh. like so there was no there was no more playing at that point so it just happened to work that that was the last take that um went down and, and could have went down and it, and it was the one so it was just that kind of experience we did that for 13 days straight That's and at the end of that 13 days we had 
you know, an album's worth of material. We just had to take it home and, and sort of figure out what's what and put vocals to the scats and like actual lyrics to the scats and then sing actual vocal takes. And then it was done. Well, it's a cool album. I'm, I think my favorite track off the album and one of my favorite tracks that you guys have ever done is Astro DuPont Pain. Oh, wow. I ab- I've never heard anybody mention that song ever in the history of our band. I absolutely love that song. It is so great. Wow. Um, that song's actually built from some drum takes um, from another session that we did. And I had all these awesome sounding drums laying around. And they didn't get used for songs. So I started repurposing them and chopping them up into sections. And Oh, wow. And built a whole new like rhythm track out of it. And then recorded the rest of that stuff at home. That track wasn't even, um, I don't even think the beds for that were actually recorded at Rancho. I think that most of that stuff came from home recordings and then drums that were tracked from a different session at Rancho. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was like a late add to the album. It wasn't even going to be on the album actually. Um, but it was something that I'd sort of made at the time and we were like, should we put it on the album? So we ended up putting it on the album. Oh, I'm glad you did. Cause it's one of my favorite tracks. Oh, that's cool. Well, that's Love that it. makes the choice all all that much more <laughs> worth it. Then. So, the the recording of the new album. You, you, so you, you we made it. You made it admission, and and that that's great. But I want to I want to get a little bit into into uh, the new album, uh, Time Square sure. Discount, because I have some questions. You you approach the recording a little bit differently. Instead of you know holding up for two weeks or or whatever, you guys decided to only record for a few days at a time. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I guess the reason for that was because admission was a thing where we were sort of put together with a a producer and we spent a month together making an album to start to finish. That's right. That's right. You guys. Okay. So, so before we get too far into it, why did you guys choose you you self-produced everything before that, before admission? Yeah. And you got, um, Oh, who was the producer for that one? I have Daniel Ray. Dan, Daniel Ray, yeah. He did a bunch of work with the Ramones and, and a bunch of folks. Um, um, so he, he was, you know, someone that you know, we had a great deal of respect for right, and yeah. thought we could learn a lot from. And we did. He, we, we remember, I remember saying after the experience that he batted a thousand. Like he, every single one of the song moves that he encouraged us to make like, like significant changes to our songs, those things that make you go, Whoa, really? Yeah. Um, every single one of them, uh, have, have, have lasted and have gotten better over time. Like it was like, Oh yeah, he was right. Not only was he right, but like, this is way better than what we had. <laughs> so it was a pleasure to work with him. He was great. Um, and I loved the idea going into that experience of, just relinquishing all control and letting somebody else, um, help us make a record. And so I, you know, I totally gave into that process and it was awesome. We we loved it. But, uh, that, you know, after that, and it just felt like, uh, it would be nice to have a little bit of time to, um, I mean, cause we, you know, we did that record, like, you know, you would, you would sort of make records, um, a long time ago, or you know, maybe some people make records like that still, but you know, we wanted to slow down a little bit and just work in chunks, not have to grind away for 14 days and wonder if I'll be able to come up with any good riffs that morning. Oh, that you know, makes like, sense. You know, it just felt like 
let's embrace those luxuries of, of reflection and, 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 uh, you know, some time to live with the things that we're working on instead of just rushing them out there because it just felt like the thing to do at the time. It felt like the, the thing that we should do. And so instead of committing to some studio and, and, and wondering whether or not to bring songs or putting pressure on ourselves or any crew to sort of do what we had done with Enduro at Rancho, we wanted to do something that um, was a little more relaxed, spread out, and give us some time to live with the material before we rushed it out there. And we were touring a lot at the time too. So it kind of made sense. It was like, all right, let's just keep touring. And when we don't have tour stuff happening, let's just book a session, block out some time and go record some stuff and write about some experiences and things that are um, fresh. Right. And so that's what we did. We just, you know, carved out time in our touring schedule to just go do four days at Rancho de Luna, go do uh, four days at 606 in Los Angeles um, spend a week at Phoebe street in Toronto, um, get a few days here, there, like wherever we could sort of get away to just, um, have like a, an immersive sort of unique experience. Uh, we went after and we, I guess because we had access to, to those places that, um, we felt we could do it that way. So you spent a couple of years in LA actually writing music for other people. How did that come about? How did you get started with that? And did that affect the writing for the new album? Well, yeah, I mean, that kind of ties into the last thing. Cause, um, I have, have had this writing gig in LA, um, as you said, for a while, for the last few years. And, and so that was all going on at the same time. So, um, it sort of made sense to piggyback, some of the dearly beloved stuff on my writing gig in LA. So if I was there doing some kind of session for a couple of weeks or a bunch of sessions or whatever, um, it's like, all right, well let's, you know, go early or let's stay late and, and carve out some time there to, to work on some new material. So I guess it was kind of like a lifestyle thing and just artistically, it just felt like a more relaxed approach. And I mean, you know, if you listen to the the sounds on the new record, there's there's a lot of chilled out weird stuff there compared yeah. to some of the straight ahead rock that we've done in the past, and and so I you know I think that's you know, that's connected to the the chilled out approach to the record and the right. fact that we did it in California. There's there's some like you said some really weird stuff going right. on in there like like fuck the banks. Yeah, that 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 is a really cool ass song. There, what is going on with the vocals there? There's something weird. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. I mean, we we haven't had a chance to talk about that song with anybody before, and uh, you know, touring got shut down so quickly. Yeah, um, after our album was released, I mean, we managed to get some touring in in Europe, which was awesome. It was Sebado, that was rad. But our second tour with Sebado got canceled, and yeah. And, uh, um, so we haven't really had a chance to talk to folks that have bought the record or listened to the record uh, all that much. And, and that's, um, one of my favorite songs on the album. I, I mean, too. um, and it, it was definitely the most 
unique recording experience I've ever had in my life. I mean, it was not supposed to be on the album. Um, oh, really? I was just I was making experimental music in L.A. with a friend of mine, and I had just gone on this rant all morning about how I, there's just no point in writing, you know, certain kinds of lyrics, and that I may as well just be saying things like "fuck the military," "fuck the <laughs> banks," "fuck all these things that." Um, are helpful, but at the same time, obviously things that have caused many people uh, great pain. So there was this, just this blunt vibe going on. And so we needed a suitably blunt track to go with this whole fuck the banks sort of mentality. And, and, uh, so I started imagining my voice as like in that part you were talking about as like a character, and how could I get this character out of my voice and uh, without it just sounding you know, hokey and stupid? And, <laughs> and, um, and it just, you know, I thought that the way that it could work was if, if I just learned it backwards and then sung it backwards and then we flipped it back around, could I make it sound like fuck the banks? So I just figured out how to sing it backwards or, you know, speak it, sing it. Speak, right. sing it backwards. Fuck the banks. It wasn't it wasn't that hard. Like just kind of learning the the rough sort of you know ballparking it, and then right. we'd record that to the track backwards. Then we'd flip it all back around to see what we got. That was kind of fun. It was like, all right, let's see what we got this time. <laughs> yeah. And and it sounded like this drunk sort of. I don't know where he would be from. Maybe like maybe if he's like I mean. He's got this European sort of accent, yeah. this, the, the, the voice that came out. And it's this sort of drunken, slurry, uh, nondescript accent. And it was like, oh, yeah, that's it. And we sort of hit it. So we kept doing it and we started singing all these things like uh, the um, military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex. And we started singing them backwards and doing this technique and started burying them in the track. Or you probably, uh, I'm not sure you even realize, but like they're, they're all, all those little phrases are buried in there as, oh, as, as, as subtle little subliminal sounds. And, uh, oh, and, the, and all the tracks themselves, like the drums, everything that's in there, that was all just made around the microphone, just hitting the floor, hitting the wall. Uh, like we built wow. up the rhythm track, you know, at the same time, right around using no drums, just like layering up stomps on the floor, smacks of a door. We took four um, giant recycling bins out onto the street and uh, we emptied them all and then had people slam them simultaneously um, with, with them spread out, like social distanced, uh, <laughs> if you will. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then recorded it, um, using two cell phones on either side of the street kind of shit, like, oh, you know, fucked yeah. up shit like that. Like That's we awesome. would walk around with our cell phones on either side of the street on sidewalks and like walk towards sunset Boulevard and just record that and then import it into the computer and 
pan them out stereo so that, that it had this uh, sort of crescendoing atmosphere in the background stuff that oh. you'd never notice. Um, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it almost like, like what's the fucking point? And I didn't know what the point was. We were just doing it. And, and, uh, and that track is just a great memory for those reasons. We tried all these things that make no sense and they all added up to this thing that we both kind of treasure as this discovery that, you know, cause none Tyler, uh, who I was Tyler beans, who I was doing the track with, um, he's worked at a lot of great studios with a lot of great people and he's got a, a lot of experience and he had never sort of had a moment like that where we were both kind of like, shit, like what just happened? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that song's a great memory, and and I'm really happy to hear that somebody appreciates it. That's oh, great. I love it. I, I also love uh, New Versus. That might be my favorite track on the album. It's got those beautiful, beautifully sung lyrics, beautiful harmonies, and, and these big dinosaur riffs. It's just, it's that is a really powerful track. that that's very kind it's a it's a tough song that one it's uh it's about facing your own mortality and and trying to you know you you've, you heard the song <laughs> I'll, yeah. have, I'll, I'll let folks discover it on their own i don't need to explain it all. all right on a lighter note i do have a question for you what in the hell are dog food thumbs Oh man, that's um, Neva. Why don't I, Why don't you say something? <laughs> uh, would you Would you like to tell the story of dog food thumbs? How did that come to be? And what are they? Uh, you should continue your. Uh... <laughs> All right. Well, I do have a question for Neva. Okay. Shoot. How did you get started with the theremin? Because I don't imagine that's something somebody just picks up. How did how did that happen? It was it kind of was. It was um I'd been playing around with um I just wanted to do different sounds and I'd seen the Moog theremini and so we got it or I got it and we I played around, ran it through filters, and it was just fun to be able to layer sounds and add, you know, add atmosphere, really. It was it was a bit wacky, and I could be a bit of a wizard that way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, the theremin, it's an instrument that fascinates me. It's just so crazy. I, want to, I actually want to do an, an entire show on the theremin, so if you ever have... <laughs> Free time For on the that. record, she didn't even tell us. Like she just showed up with this thing, and it really? was just like this new thing. And we were all like, <laughs> "Oh, okay." <laughs> and then she started slaying through some effects, and it sounded just awesome. That is really cool. What, what were you using before the theremin? You were using like some sort of no- noise box. 
Um, I think it was just the vocal boxes, wasn't it? I remember Eamon hooked you up with something. Oh, yes. The speaker. It was short-lived. It was... It <laughs> was... Uh, you made noise with, with it. What was it? Oh, it was a speaker output, and it just fucked up everything. <laughs> <laughs> it was used for one tour, and then we had to toss it. Oh, really? It was like a receiver. Well, that was the predecessor to the theremin. That was the noise machine that she had originally. It was just this box that created some noise, and it was it was awesome. And uh, and then one day it was a theremin, and we were like, "All right," okay. and it, it gave it gave Neva this like sort of wizard like quality <laughs> that we were down with. That's awesome. Well, if you're ever interested in doing a show on the theremin, I got a couple people. That I'm lined up that I wanted that to kind of explain it, what the hell it does and how it works. And so, um, are we ready to just tell the story of dog food thumbs now? Go for it. I was hoping you would tell the story cause it's related to Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee, your sparrow. Yes. <laughs> so that's another story. Yeah, I mean, dude, this is, that's what I mean. Like, this is a whole thing to unpack. That's why I was <laughs> going to let, I was, you know, hoping Neva would, would, uh, would start the unpacking. But basically, for folks that don't know, because we post about her, but um, this sparrow needed to be rescued by our house, so we saved her. Her name is Bruce Lee, and uh, she has an Instagram, Bruce Lee Beverly Hillsburg. And uh, she brings uh, great joy to each and every day. But we saved her from great peril, and she's become part of the household. And when you're caring for a, a new sparrow like that, the Internet says you're supposed to feed them a little bit of dog food, oh. um, like a mushy dog food mixed with some other stuff for them to get some protein. Okay. So... Um, we started having dog food thumbs and, and it just became like a joke um, <laughs> because we're feeding a, a baby sparrow dog food <laughs> and we're a rock and roll band. So none of it made sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those moments when you're like, okay, what, what is happening now? Yeah. And, um, and so uh, we have, a great appreciation for song titles that are funny. And, um, in fact, on this new batch of songs we're working on, we kind of have one rule and that is like, the, it cannot become a song until the, the title is funny. So, nice. um, it's just something that we've always enjoyed and we kind of got away from that for a minute, but we're trying to get back there. And, <laughs> I love uh, humor. <laughs> yeah. So dog food thumbs just became, you know, it's just, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard to function when you have dog food thumbs, you, you know, you got to clean the dog foods off your thumbs first before you can do other things. <laughs> um, so, you know, it just became, you know, again, like this sort of, you know, representative of, of other things. And so it allowed us to address certain issues, if you will. And, um, using that, that, uh, metaphor. I know nobody's touring right now with the virus going, running rampant still. Generally speaking, how often are you guys out on tour? How many 
days, well, months, not, weeks. Not very much. There's this misconception that we're like, just like it's said about us, we're touring all the time. Like we're not. We're com- constantly miserable about how much touring we're not doing. Oh, okay. That was the reality all the time. People were like, oh, you guys are always touring. Um, we just wanted to be touring more. And it was always, it has always been a great frustration of ours that, that we haven't been able to tour more constantly. Um, but we have, you know, all things considered, because uh, we haven't had um, representation for the entire run of the band. We've had to book a lot of our own shows for wow. a large chunk of the band's history. So considering that, we've done a lot of touring. I mean, we've managed to play like 28 countries or something. And That's a cool. lot of that was booked ourselves with the help of friends. And, and a, a lot of that was also supporting great bands playing in big venues to, to awesome crowds. So we've kind of played all kinds of shows, um, uh, in that time. And, uh, and we're, we're really, you know, especially now in light of everything going on, we feel really fortunate to have been able to do all that touring and, and, uh, look back on it, you know, and you guys have had some great stories very fondly. Yeah, we got some great stories out of it, and it just—it just—it's just hard to imagine it being the way some of those things were and for a long time. And so, really thankful for those experiences. Well, I've kept you guys quite a while now. How can people follow you on on social media? How can they follow Bruce Lee? How can they pick up the album? <laughs> uh, all right. Um, well, you can. Hit us up on Bandcamp for any of our merch and music. It's pretty easy to find us there. And we're on social media as The Beloveds. So just at The Beloveds. And uh, Bruce Lee's Instagram is Bruce Lee Beverly Hills Bird. I repeat, at Bruce Lee Beverly Hills Bird. (laughs) Uh, I do encourage you to, to follow her only because she is consistent as hell, man. I mean, <laughs> every day she's bringing it like every day. She's a cute, joyful sparrow and it's relentless. I, you know, if there's anything I've ever heard about sparrows, it's that they are relentless. <laughs> so, the one thing I can say. They, she is definitely a sparrow. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been a blast. Oh, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and thanks for having us on, man. I really appreciate it, too. Thank you for having us. the American dream. 
the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.